0: A reading from the 6th chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah, beginning at the first verse. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hymn of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above the Lord. Each had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. The pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, Your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep listening, but do not comprehend. Keep looking, but do not understand. Make the mind of this people dull, and stop their ears, and shut their eyes, so that they may not look with their eyes, and listen with their ears, and comprehend with their minds, and turn, and be healed. Then I said, "How long, Lord?" And God said until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is utterly desolate, until the Lord sends everyone far away and vast is the emptiness in the midst of the land. Even if a tenth part remains in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains standing when it felled. The holy seed is its stone. These are our sacred stories. Thanks be to God.
1: There are many stories of God's call and our sacred stories. The call stories in the First Testament almost all begin with, what? Me? Not me. Think about Moses, Jonah, Esther, Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Deborah. You could keep going. First Testament folks have a dream or see writing on the wall, or hear a voice, see a burning bush, hear God, and they respond with, You want me to do what? How about send my brother? Who are you anyway? Now compare that to the Second Testament where Jesus walks by and says, Follow me. And almost without exception, the people get up, drop everything they're doing, and follow. As I've explained to some of you before, in the churches that raised me, there were two options for those who were called. You could be a prodigal or a Moses. And whichever testimony you chose, you shared it regularly. The prodigal testimony was structured on having had had a whole lot of fun, And then hearing God's call and needing to give up all the fun you've been having and follow God. And once you stopped all your fun and followed God, you then went to churches and camps and you told everybody. And excruciating detail about how much fun you used to have until God called you. This option was never available to me because I've never had much fun. Moses' testimony was structured on hearing a call from God to do something extremely specific like go be a missionary in China. You had to say no to this call for several years, maybe even some degrees in school, and then you would finally surrender and do the thing God told you to do back when you were 13 at youth camp. You know that? You would eventually return from whatever mission experience you were called to go on and then go to churches and camps and tell everyone in excruciating detail how much fun you didn't have listening to God. While this option was available for me, I did manage to avoid it by finding progressive Christianity, thank God. Isaiah didn't get the memo and doesn't fit either of these models. He's a First Testament anomaly. He doesn't resist the call of God, and arguably he's not called at all. He volunteers. He has this vision. You heard it read this morning, and in the vision, God asks who God can send to the people. And unless this is a passive-aggressive or sarcastic God, it's not a calling, it's a quandary. Whom can I send, and who will go for us? God ponders. Isaiah volunteers. But, and friends, I realized this for the first time this week, he doesn't volunteer from a place of arrogance. This is not the arrogance of so much of what is blamed on the call of God, you know, where rich white people go to feel good about themselves by heaping token benevolence on people they never bother to build relationships with, merely reinforcing the power differential, where there's no sharing, no community, no learning, and listening, just superiority. Colonialism dressed up as religion. This is not what's happening here, but it's only because Isaiah has an epiphany before this vision, before chapter 6, Isaiah is judgmental, arrogant, superior. In chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah has a lot to say of Judah, and none of it is kind or compassionate. He accuses them of having forgotten and forsaken the Lord. That's chapter 1, verse 4. He says their worship is futile. Chapter 1, verses 11 through 17. He accuses their leaders of being corrupt, chapter 1, verse 23. He says they're full of greed, and that greed has led them to injustice. Just read all of chapter one. In chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah has distanced himself from the people. He's arrogant and judgmental. He has all the answers, and the people just need to listen and do exactly what he says the way he says. Isaiah's tone throughout is critical and condemning. He seems almost to take delight in the coming calamity. For five chapters, he's pointed his judgmental finger at his fellow Judeans, but in chapter 6, in the presence of Yahweh's holiness, he suddenly realizes his own unholiness. He cries, woe is me, I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the Lord, the God of hosts. He comes to understand that he's One of them. He goes from judging to seeing himself as part of the people and thus part of the problem. It finally occurs to him that he is not only dwelling among a people of unclean lips, but he is also one of unclean lips, that he too is subject to judgment, to the coming calamity. His arrogance is transformed into authenticity. Maybe, just maybe, I noticed this for the first time this week because I've been seeing my own arrogance more in these days. And my own arrogance is leaving me judgmental and with little compassion. I find myself thinking, how stupid can you be more often than I am thinking how hard, how challenging, I'm sure there's something I don't understand here. I have been listening, but not comprehending, and the truth is, I've not been listening very well at all. I've been listening to ridicule or refute. I've been feeling superior and almost gleeful when, for example, politicians who lie about vaccines get COVID. When a white person claims to be not a racist, when someone shouts about what the Bible says, I could go on and on. I haven't known what to do with these feelings of arrogance and superiority. But this week, at least, I had a name for them and a companion in Isaiah. It's not just arrogance, it's intellectual arrogance. I wonder if I'm the only one struggling with intellectual arrogance, the only one feeling self-righteous and superior in these days. I don't need you to raise your hands. (laughs) Assuming I'm not alone, allow me to share some thoughts of Dr. Mark Leary a social and personality psychologist at Duke University. His work centers around intellectual humility. He says intellectual humility is the recognition that things you believe might in fact be wrong. Humility is not bashfulness. It's not about being a pushover. It's not about lacking confidence or self-esteem. No intellectual humility is a way of being, a method. It's about entertaining the possibility that we may be wrong and being open to learning from the experiences of others. That part really got me. Being open to learning from the experiences of others. It may not be that the person is stupid. It might be that they've experienced the world in a way I don't understand. Intellectual humility is about being actively curious about my own perceptions and misperceptions. It's about asking again and again, what am I missing here? This is about joining with Isaiah and knowing that we are one of the people. We are all struggling, all learning, all seeking It's about checking our perceived superiority and replacing it with compassion, with curiosity. And yes, with challenge. Humility doesn't mean we let injustice stand. It doesn't mean we're never angry or argue. The prophets were angry at injustice all the time. But they knew that they were part of the injustice and part of the solution. Isaiah leaves his judgmental superiority. He abandons his arrogance. He moves into a place of shared problems and shared solutions, and from that place, he volunteers. Here I am. Send me. Perhaps God is always asking, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Sometimes we see a burning bush, and sometimes we volunteer, and however it happens, we're all called and all needed. We're called to use the skills we already have for people, for each other, for ourselves. Not from a place of superiority and having all of the answers, not out of arrogance. But because we have each other, and together we work for change, And our work for change, for justice, for peace, for love, it's rarely consistent with what might be recognized as success, especially in the short term. It is the work not only of a lifetime, but perhaps of all time. It's the work so often full of what is described in Isaiah's vision. In this vision, God tells Isaiah what he's volunteered for. Go and say to this people, keep listening, but don't comprehend. Keep looking, but don't understand. Make the mind of this people dull and stop their ears and shut their eyes so that they may not look with their eyes and listen with their ears and comprehend with their minds and turn and heal. And in the vision, in the dream, Isaiah says, How long? How long? A week? How long? And the Lord explains that Isaiah's seemingly futile efforts will go on until the land is utterly desolate and everyone is sent far away and everything is destroyed and then burned. But in the vision, in the vision, a stump remains standing when the tree is fell and the holy seed is in the stump. Isaiah has a vision of his future, and it's not triumphant. He has no likes on his Facebook page. No one has ever shared any of his posts. He's never been retweeted. He has not given a mega temple or a TV show. He doesn't even try to. Based on everything the world would see as success, Isaiah is going to fail and fail big time. Maybe that's why he had to let go of that arrogance. What if, what if, my friends, what if we measured success within the context of the holiness of God? God has a message, one that's been echoing through the generations. Isaiah is willing to share the message. Even though Isaiah will not see it in his lifetime, a seed will be created, a seed of hope and justice and love. Interestingly to me, this vision of Isaiah seems to inspire him rather than leave him in despair. He now knows that he's one of the people. He knows that he's part of the problem and part of the solutions. He is a prophet, yes, and he's one of the people. And Isaiah and the people are worried and anxious. The passage begins, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah reigned for half a century, and it was a great half-century. The people prospered, but after his death, things changed, and poverty replaced prosperity. Uzziah would be remembered fondly, and his death would be remembered with great sadness. In the year that King Uzziah died, is a phrase is a phrase heavy with meaning. The people are filled with uncertainty; change is needed. And Isaiah volunteers. He volunteers to go to them, to be with them as one of them, not an other, but among them. And from a place of community of shared responsibility, Isaiah, in the very next chapter, goes to the new king with a message of reassurance and practically pleads for the king's response for repentance and change. He does all of this from a place of authenticity and humility and openness and unity. And so we seek answers together and we work on our arrogance and we try to be authentic. (laughs) And we work Together And we sing together, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Because sometimes we're called, and sometimes we volunteer, and however it happens, we are needed. We must love ourselves and each other and the world. And we might not ever achieve anything the world might call success. But as people of faith, we will live into hope. We will work for justice. We will trust that the seed
0: is growing.